Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. You're hitting between 30 and 35 miles an hour, um, so it's, it's pretty fast. Mesdames et messieurs. The greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Oh! You can do it! You can do it! Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant! But that is an Olympic champion. Ready? Hello and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I am very excited about today's interview. I know we have a great guest today. We're talking with Laura Wilkinson, a three-time Olympian who stunned the competition. We'll get right into it. Like, we can just get right into this because... I know. Let's not wait. Just climb up that tower. That's right. Okay, so... Uh, Laura is a three-time Olympian who stunned the competition in Sydney 2000 when, with a broken foot, she came back from eighth place to win the gold medal. She competed in two more Olympics in Athens 2004, where she placed fifth, and in Beijing 2008, where she placed ninth. A mom to four children, she hosts her own podcast called The Hope Sports Podcast, where she talks with elite athletes about getting to the top and also feeling a sense of purpose and fulfillment. Plus, she's developing a mental training course called Confident Competitor. And if all that wasn't enough, she's recovering from spinal fusion surgery and attempting a comeback to competitive diving with an eye on the 2020 Olympics. We had such a great time talking with Laura that uh, we got a really, really long interview out of it. So we've had to split it into two parts. And this week, she's going to explain more about the details of the sport of diving. Take a listen. The first question I want to ask is, how are you feeling? How are you doing? I'm doing good. I know you can probably see my lovely neck brace here. I'm hoping I only have it on for about one more week, but I just had a cervical fusion the day after Christmas. And so, it, you know, it was necessary and I'm just glad it's over with and I'm on the route to recovery. Nice. Good. How did, was the fusion, was that a result of years and years of diving? I mean, we don't really know. I'm guessing so. I mean, they just say it's degeneration, which I mean, it's very common. It's not unusual to have cervical fusions are really common these days, but it was likely because of all the pounding. Obviously, my neck has taken a lot of hits um, from the tower. And what was interesting is we didn't I knew I had some neck issues, but we didn't I had an MRI about a year and almost two years ago. And it was it was OK. They just kind of said, watch for certain symptoms. And this past fall, when I got back up on 10 meter and I was excited to compete, I my arm just kept kind of collapsing onto my head every time. 
time I hit the water. And I just didn't understand because my arm was strong. I felt really good. And so I couldn't understand why I, I couldn't lock it out. And so they MRI'd it again. And I mean, my, my discs looked like a comb on my spinal column. Like it just was really bad and impinging. And I was having a lot of weakness down my arm and a lot of nerve issues. Some of them had been there for over a decade and I didn't know it was all coming from my neck. And so the good part is as soon as the surgery happened, I mean, immediately I had grip strength back in my hand and some of the numbness went away in my fingers. And, um, it's kind of like a lot of up and downs as the nerves are trying to heal and regenerate. But, um, yeah, it's, it's been kind of a wild ride, but hopefully I'll just, if nothing else, be a more functional mom, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Having your hands not work, definitely a problem. Yeah. Well, let's talk a bit about the sport of diving first. And you specialize in the platform aspect of it, correct? Yeah. And so a 10-meter platform is what they compete in at the Olympics, which is about three stories tall. And you basically throw yourself off, do some acrobatic moves, and land, uh, dive headfirst perfectly straight. Yes, without a splash. No splash. Okay. So take us through a little bit of the basics of the dive and the lingo that we talk about, because there's different positions your body is in and there's twists and and other things. Uh, So uh, talk to us about the different positions you can be in when you dive. Uh, Yeah, there's four different positions. um, And actually, dives have numbers and letters attached to them. There's kind of like a code. It's kind of like our own little secret language. Um, And so when you see the number, um, if you understand the code system, you know exactly what dive's about to happen. And so there's four positions, A, B, C, and D. A is straight, like your whole body is just locked out straight. Uh, just like if you were standing up or a pencil or something. We do B is pike, where you your legs are straight, but you're bent in half at the waist. Uh, C is the tuck position, where you're kind of tucked up in a small little ball like you're about to do a cannonball. And D is called the free position. And that usually happens in certain twisting dives, where maybe um, for the first first somersault, you're completely straight twisting, and then you have to pike over to get it to get the rotation into the water. So the similar phrases from gymnastics. Oh, yeah. Very similar. Very similar acrobatics. Yes. Okay. And then you can take off of the platform forwards, backwards. Uh, You can do a little run and, and jump. And you can also do handstands, correct? Yeah. So there's six different categories. You have front, back what's called reverse, which is where you're facing forwards, but you do a backflip toward the platform. Yes, that scares a lot of people. And then there's an inward, which is also kind of scary because you're facing backwards, but you flip forwards toward the platform. Then there's the twisting ones where you flip and you kind of spin around like a corkscrew at the same time. And then there's the handstand, which we also call arm stands. Okay. What makes it more, what, where does it rank on difficulty? All of these elements. Uh, it just kind of depends. It depends on how many flips you're doing, on how what, what position it's in, how many twists there are. So they all have, there's a formula and then um, a committee that kind of oversees it. Um, they kind of adjust things as needed from the formula. But there's, so there's a different degree of difficulty assigned to every dive. Okay. So every dive, you're, there's a, a grade of difficulty that's set. Yes. So it's similar to figure skating and gymnastics where this particular move is worth yeah, they, number of points. They have and, actually changed to structure it more like diving. So we we will right. get scores from the judges, and they'll throw out the highs and the lows, and they'll take the middle scores. Um, if there's extras, they can multiply it by a fraction to get the right, but it's essentially like the middle three scores, and they multiply it times the degree of difficulty. So there's no cap on what you can get um, just on your, your technique, um, you know, the one through ten score. And what they're, they're grading you on is how you're doing that particular dive and then the difficulty is a separate number. Right, and multiplied into it, yes. Okay. Okay. 
how how do dives get added to the lexicon? You have to if if you create a new dive, you can if it's not in the rule book already, you can petition FINA, which is our international uh, aquatics governing body. You can petition them for the next meeting that they have to add it into the rule book. Is any takeoff or position banned? Uh, not that I know of. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you can't really install like an additional, you know, springboard onto the platform or a trampoline mm-hmm. or anything like that. But um, yeah, there's nothing nothing banned that I know of. Because certainly in gymnastics and, and figure skating, there are lots of things, lots of moves that are not allowed in, in mm-hmm. competition. Yeah. As long as it's in the rule book and it's been petitioned in, then you can. Yes. Have, have you petitioned in dives? Uh, no, not personally. We've had people on our team. Uh, one of our the kids on our team was the first one to do like an inward four and a half uh, somersaults. And that was a huge, it was the first degree of difficulty to go over 4.0. So that's a whole lot of flipping right there. <laughs> wow. I'm getting yeah. dizzy just thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. So when, when you jump, how much time do you have between the platform and the water? Do you have to get your dive done? Less than two seconds. So, because you're taking off at about you know thirty or thirty-three feet, um, and by the time you hit the water, so you're you're hitting between thirty and thirty-five miles an hour. Um, so it's it's pretty fast. But it's weird because when you're in the air, it doesn't feel that quick. Like it feels slower, and you actually have time to process so many things in your head. It's it's very weird how much can go through your head in such a short amount of time. So then, uh, take us through a dive. You know, what do, what do you process? Like, what well, what is your favorite dive right now? Ooh, um, I've always loved twisters and backs and reverses. So I, I don't know. I like most of them. <laughs> but if if I was going to go up to do like my twisting dive, um, I try to actually do most of my thinking back on the platform before I walk to the end. Because like I said, it happens so fast and things do go through your mind. But you can't, you know, break down every little thing in the middle of the air. Like you're just kind of understanding things as they happen, kind of, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So you do your thinking back on the platform, maybe just one or two key things like your coach has told you to focus on and you kind of go through that in your head, maybe, maybe do an action, like a modeling action as you're standing there. And then when you walk to the end, you kind of let your muscle memory take over and you try not to think too much or you'll stand for like 20 minutes on the platform. So once you get in the air, you're kind of letting your body take over and you're just trying to think of those one or two things. Okay. And then how how does it feel going into the water? Um, Well, sometimes really good and sometimes really bad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, it's funny. Sometimes a really good entry can actually hurt more because you're so locked out and you're so solid on it. Sometimes it's actually more of an impact, but it's kind of cool because there's a lot, I don't know if it's like wind in your ears or you're thinking so much, but then once you hit the water, everything just goes silent. You know, there's like, you can hear your entry. You can hear if you make that nice rip entry, which is kind of sounds like paper tearing um, as you go through the water, if it's really good. And then once you get under the water, it's just so quiet and it's kind of a weird, weird thing. But then, you know, other times, you know, if you hit bad, like if you miss your, your spotting, like you don't see your visual cues in the air and you come out too early or too late and you smack Oh, I mean, it's just pain, you know, sometimes you get the wind knocked out of you or you just stings really bad. So it just really depends on the dive. Okay. So I've seen a couple of dives where clearly, you know, that went really, really wrong, which makes me crazy. (laughs) Can you, you were just talking about spotting. Do you, can you just lose your place in the air and not kind of know where you are? Oh yeah. Yeah. So spotting when we, it's visual cues. So like if I'm doing three and a half somersaults, I want to see the water on every rotation. Kind of like if you see a dancer spin like their corkscrew, you know, their head kind of stays still and then it whips around at the last minute to see that one spot that they're looking at. We do that, but to the water, you want to see the water every time. 
Well, I had an issue when I was doing this arm stand dive where I kept throwing my head back on the takeoff. And instead of seeing the water, I started spotting the sky and the ceiling. And I was so disoriented and I got scared of everything spinning backwards for like two years and started closing my eyes. I was terrified to do everything. So it's, um, yeah, it's definitely a mental sport too, but it, it can be scary if you don't know where you are in the air. I stunned you into silence. <laughs> you no, know, because no, I'm sort of thinking back on some of the bad dives I've I've seen, you know, in competition. And I was like, that has to be the most terrifying thing in the world. You're falling, you know, 10 meters, mm-hmm. about to hit the brick wall of water, and you don't know where you are. Yeah. And you know that smack is coming. Like that's the one thing is you're falling and you know what's about to happen. And that's like the worst, especially if it happens right on the takeoff. And so you know that entire fall that this is coming. Like that's that's pretty brutal. Uh, but sometimes it happens in the middle of the dive. Like I've seen people that they just slip out, like their hand just slips off their leg and they come out at the wrong time and it's just not even under their control. And so that can happen as well. Lots of fluky things can happen. What happens on the takeoff that you know you're just off? If you if you maybe sit back too far from the platform or you stand up like there's, you know, there's a lot of little techniques to make sure you're doing things right. And if, if you're doing like a reverse, something that could come close to the platform because you're, you're standing forward and spinning toward the platform, um, you know, if you if you stand up before your arms swing all the way through, you can get really close to the platform. And sometimes that, you know, you don't know how close you are because you can't see it behind you. So that that can be really scary. Those kind of things. Yeah, That's I'm not trying you need, this. You need a good coach <laughs> to rely on to, to tell you exactly what you need to do to make those actions right, to keep you safe, and to also dive well. One question I have is, you dive, and then you go straight to the hot tub or shower. It's cold. Why? <laughs> it's cold. <laughs> well, usually you, when you're in those big arenas, I mean, they're going to blast the air, and especially if it's going to be a, a big like world event where they're going to have thousands of people in the, in the audience, they totally crank the air down so people aren't super hot and uncomfortable. Well, so we're freezing because we're just standing out there all by ourselves and we're soaking wet. And so we want to stay hot, warm in the hot tub because if you know if you get cold, your muscles get tight and it's really hard to do the right actions and you're, you can't swing your arms right, you can't jump well, so you want to stay loose. And so that's generally what the hot shower or the hot tub is for. Okay. Yeah. And then we have those little towels we carry around. Those we call them we call them chamois or sammies. Those those are for multi purposes. I mean, it helps keep you warm. It dries you off, but also so you don't slip out of certain dives, like slipping your hand off of a tuck or something. It kind of dries your legs off and things. And and then we use it as a safety blanket. You know, it's the one thing you can hang on to <laughs> during the meet during the workout. Yes. On to the bad things that can happen. <laughs> because we have bathing suits involved and now they have cameras underwater. Oh, have yes. you had a, wa- a wardrobe malfunction? Fortunately, I have not. Um, I think generally we know that's, that those cameras are there, so I tend to try to wear tighter suits. Um, I know during the Sydney Olympics, the Australian uh, night shows had a lot of fun with some of the underwater shots where girls were losing their tops and things like that. But fortunately, I have not been one of those victims. <laughs> See, we ask the important questions, Laura. <laughs> These are the things that the people want to know. It's good. Then then also, when you put together your dive program, because you have to do so many, many what was it? It's like you do up to 14 or 15 dives if you make it all the way through every round. Yeah, girls do um, five dives in each round, and there's usually a prelims, a semis, and a finals, so 15 okay. dives. Okay. Are they the same dives for every round, or do you mix them up? 
both. Generally, people have their list of dives and they're they're perfecting them, so they will do them every single time. But sometimes people are working on a new dive or an extra hard dive that they don't want to do maybe in the preliminary rounds where it's not as important um, or they're tired. And so you can change it. You have usually an hour after um, the session that just finished to change it for the next session. Okay. I was just going to ask if you have to submit the dives to the judges ahead of time. Uh, yeah, to the referee. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, so everybody then, knows in advance what, what you're about to do. Okay. And I would assume then that prepares the referees for knowing what to look for or the judges yes. for knowing what to yes, look for. Both. Yes. Okay. Cause the re- the referee is the one who ultimately will call like a failed dive or not if they don't complete, complete the dive. But the judges also obviously have to know what's coming because they're responsible. If it is a failed dive and the ref doesn't call it, they have to score it a zero. So yeah. Okay. And then wh- how do you put your program together? Do you want to do inward and outward and tucks and and pikes and all you know what do you want to showcase in a in a diving what do you what would you even call that your list we call our list of dives yeah so so for the men on platform um they have to do six dives in each round and that's there's only six categories so they have to do one from every single category and then the women we only have to do five and so we can obviously choose to not do one of the categories so generally you just go with your strengths like if you're really really bad at one of the groups like you don't want to do that so um you know that's kind of kind of what you do you practice all the different ones when you're younger and you're growing up and you kind of get to the point where you know what you're going to do the best And it's nice if you like, I actually have all six categories. I can do dives in all six categories. And so I will train all of them. And then whatever five are going best leading up to that, I will do. Or if, you know, one's a lot harder and I need kind of a lighter load, I'll just take that one out. So it's, it's really nice when you have the extra one that you can just take out. Your list always feels easier. Do you have a favorite right? Well, when for the fall, (laughs) well, I was really liking um, my back three and a half tuck. So I used to do this dive uh, a lot, and then uh, my last three years before I retired, I started doing it pike, which I was one of two girls doing it in the world back then, and it was just a lot of dive. And so now going back to doing it tuck, it just feels so easy. <laughs> so that's actually been really nice, not having this really difficult dive, but just having it a lot of fun and, and easy and, and knowing that I'm, I'll make it well. Always a good feeling. And you were very known for your handstand dives. Yeah, Those I guess. were a bit of a signature. <laughs> Well, I guess I kind of got a little reputation because I was the first one to like cartwheel up or something. Um, I I didn't even realize that somebody told me later, but I, you know, I was a gymnast growing up. And so cartwheeling up into a handstand on beam is just what we did. And that's the way I held my handstand the best. So when we started doing backwards handstands that kind of came in, like in the late nineties, people started doing that. It just made sense to me to just cartwheel up. It was easier than, than pressing. You didn't have to use as much strength or as much balance, like uh, or it just wasn't as strenuous, I guess, on your body. It just seemed easier, and, and I could hold it that way. So that's just what we did. When you put together, do you know what the other competitors are doing in their dive lists? Or how do you, I mean, because that's part of the competition is making sure your competitive level is enough to stay in the top, correct? Yeah. I mean, generally, you kind of know what, what other competitors are doing because you've seen them in meets before and the, the previous world championships or something. You kind of have a good idea, you know, if they've been using their dives because a lot of people, you're not going to show up at the Olympics generally and using dives you've never competed before because you won't be confident with that. So you generally kind of know what people are going to do or at least, you know, what their options are. And and then right before the meet, there's always that start list. And so when there's a start list, you know what every single person's dive is. It's already like in the computer. All right. Any, uh, Allison, any other diving stuff? No, you no. know me. I'm always, I'm always coming up with like the non-technical questions. 
Well, it's kind of fun because there there is some strategy because you you can do so many dives, but you can do it in whatever order that you want to do it. There's no particular order, and so. You know, sometimes people get really strategic in that. Like if everybody's ending on the same dive, a lot of people like to end with twisters. Well, a few people might start changing that up to, to do a different dive because it's kind of fresher for the judges and they might be more apt to score it higher because it's just not the same thing over and over again. So there's some fun strategies. Or if you know your your biggest competitors are doing a certain order, like do you want to do that order and go head to head with them, you know, and, and like kind of have that rivalry or do you want to totally mix it up so you're not being compared to them? So there's some fun strategies to do when you're putting that list together too. I enjoy that side of it. Thank you so much, Laura. You can find more at laurawilkinson.com. And her podcast is at hopesports.org slash podcast. All the regular places you can find podcasts, you can find Hope Sports. You can also follow Laura on Twitter at Lala the Diver. And on Facebook, she's the Laura Wilkinson. And on Instagram, she is also Lala the Diver. And uh, there's underscores between each Lala and the but we'll have links to all of that on our show notes. And so go to olimfever.com to have a look for all those links. This was so she was interesting. Lovely. She was lovely. She and, was just... and I mean, like she broke down diving in such a way that made me understand it a whole lot more. And I do like watching diving a lot. So I, I always tune in and it's always fun to fun to see, but to understand more about the level of difficulty of each of the positions. I didn't know with like how they list everything out. Right. I mean, I knew every dive had a degree of difficulty because they always talk about that mm -hmm. with the scores, but how they determine it and the positions and, you know, and she was talking about the reverse and the inwards where you spin backwards towards mm -hmm. the platform always makes me crazy when I watch it. Right. And oh. she's like, oh, yeah, you spin towards the platform. It's fine. You know, you're 500 feet in the air. It's no problem. I'm like, <laughs> oh, my God, you are amazing. <laughs> yeah, I always worry that somebody's really going to bonk their head on the platform. I Remember when Greg Luganis? Yes, yeah. Oh, my gosh. That that's... was. I'm I thought he was, think. was. I think that was. was that a... springboard? It was springboard, but I think he was doing a reverse. Where oh, you take right, off right. And, and he just was so close to. Yes. Oh, I remember I was uh, I had this little tiny uh, black and white TV radio combination set thing that was a little portable TV. So I had it set up in my room to watch the Seoul Olympics from my because I could turn on late night competition and still catch it. And that happened in one of the late night shows. And I just it's seared in my brain just watching, watching what happened to him. Oh, man. And I love, we'll have to link to, to the video of this because he comes up out of the water and he's holding the back of his head and he's like, ow, ow, <laughs> I was worried you were going to drown in there. Right. So yeah, that was, that was a scary accident. Right. So, but it is, it's an amazing sport. It, uh, just yes. the amount of strength so you need to it. Oh, very, so very beautiful. beautiful. So, so um, next time we will talk about Sydney. Yes. And her a little bit more about her comeback so yes. tune Very in for, for more stories right and, and we also story talk about, is... yeah sydney's story is amazing and we'll yeah. also talk about her mental course that she's developing too which is yes. i'm very excited to hear about that so that will be cool that will be in a couple of weeks so yes 
be sure to tune we'll back into it. We make you wait. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'd like to take a moment to thank all of our Patreon supporters. We invest a lot of time and money in this show, and we appreciate the patrons who help us make it happen. Join our group at patreon.com slash olimfever, and for different, uh, you get special patron benefits, and for various levels, there is special bonus audio, and there is going to be some Laura Wilkinson bonus audio for our patrons soon, so hop on board to get in on that. Moving on over to Tokyo 2020 news. They are establishing a weather center. Which makes sense because there's so much concern about the heat. Right. For the Olympics. I can't remember. We talked about this maybe a month ago. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, it must have been longer ago. It must have been talking about it in the summer. They had this insane heat wave and people were dropping dead. Right, right, right. So, yes. And, uh, yeah, so they're really worried about the marathon and, and are looking at different times where that would be feasible to host and also, like, different technology to have, like, cooler roads or more tree shade. But, yeah, and I'm sure it's also... They have to look out for typhoons as well. So. Yes, this week they po- they limited who they were having one sailing. of the sailing qualifiers, and once they postponed it for a, a typhoon concern, not typhoon concern, a tsunami mm-hmm. warning, and then they closed a whole section of the um, viewing stands in case of because there was a tsunami warning. So they were afraid so, that they couldn't evacuate everybody in time, correct? Exactly. Yeah. So this weather center is going to be busy. I can imagine. And the other big Olympic news is that we are three years out from Beijing 2022. I know. Which is hard to can believe. Can you believe it? I know. It's been a year since Pyeongchang. I know. It doesn't, it feels that long and then it doesn't feel like any time has passed. Right, right, right. So. It's so strange. Yeah. I'm I, I was like, okay, so three years out. When do we see the mascot? I don't think we're gonna see the mascot until like a year before or like yeah, a probably like year not, and a half. Probably not. No, that's my favorite part. <laughs> I think they're gonna be good. I think well, they're got, gonna you've improve. got the you've got the Tokyo mascots to keep you company for a while. And there's they're always Suharang and Bandabi. That's true. I do keep them close to my heart. Okay, so on a side note. They had an event, and I don't know what event, so I apologize, that they posted a, an Instagram story, and they had the mascot, you know, the person dressed up in the mascot, and he was trying to hold up a sign, but because of the costume, he kept dropping the sign, but he couldn't pick it up because, you know, you can't really <laughs> bend down, so one of his handlers kept having to pick it up, and he kept dropping it, and of course, the face on the costume is is set right but you know underneath there (laughs) the guy who is in that costume was swearing a blue streak because he just he could hold part of it but the other hand of the costume wasn't working properly it looked like so he kept dropping it the costume clearly needs some adjustments so you know just like they have test events at the venues (laughs) Apparently, they have test events with the mascot costume, so we're going to have to see some hand adjustments made. Oh, my gosh. So the little blue guy needs some some new hands. Well, yeah, I'm sure they do have to have test events. Maybe do they have to make them longer, like the arms longer? No, I think they need to make the hands more. um, They need to be able to articulate. Okay. 
because they were just sort of like a big mitt. Oh, yeah, like, and you can't do anything with have, that. Yeah. He didn't have an opposable thumb. Oh. <laughs> and we learned nothing from evolution. <laughs> Or he sort of had a, a micro, you know, like it, it oh, was very yeah, limited. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, that's thing. hilarious. They're oh. going to have to work on his hands. Poor guy. <laughs> Imagine those guys in the heat. Oh, it's going to be rough. I hope there's like a little fan inside. Yeah, they're going to have to train at Disney. Stockholm released its big book for the 2026 Olympics. Finally. Oh, I was a little disappointed how slow they were. Come but on. Yeah, I'm surprised. Swedes are more timely than that the italians got it out first yeah yeah Hmm. i have not had a chance to read it yet but have you gotten a chance to look through it i did read it there was no big surprises in it it was it is beautiful i gotta say their facilities sound beautiful they really sound like they know what they're doing um the biggest difference is how far away everything is okay things are really spread right because there's Uh, some skiing outside of stockholm and then more skiing is way far north right and and, then most of the ice stuff oh yeah yeah and most of the ice stuff is in stockholm proper except for the sliding events which are in latvia right and there's the one thing that i did see that was really cool they're gonna have a um a ferry oh stockholm to to latvia Nice. How long so is that? How long is that ride? You know, I don't know. Okay. But it did look like it would be a cold ride, but really, really beautiful. Okay. So they're going to have a like, basically a constantly running ferry nice. for people okay. to go back and forth. Oh, that would um, be nice. Yeah, and it looked like they were also going to have a direct train route from oh. uh, Stockholm to Bora. So it okay. was. They're working very hard to not make it feel so okay. far away, but I, I, that's my only concern. Mm, interesting. It'd be interesting if, like, if from the Latvian perspective, they're thinking, oh, if we get these games, we'll have part of the games here, and there will be a bunch of income coming or a bunch of money flowing through because people will come and visit. But if they've got this ferry and that people just go back and forth on a daily basis, it may not be well. So I profitable. think. I- I don't know if you can really do back and forth and go to an event in a single day. Okay. I think you'd probably have to to stay over. But the way they presented in the bid book was this is a way of getting the smaller countries who could never host mm-hmm. an entire Olympics. Right. More Some involved exposure. and right and more active and and there's a whole union of smaller european countries that host their own Mm -hmm. winter events so this is a way so they've got facilities Mm -hmm. so they want to use those more and get some more money flowing into these other countries that couldn't do it on their own but certainly have the the interest to do part of it yeah so we'll see a few months away All right, moving on to our Team Olympic Fever update. Tiny piece of tofu. Pyeongchang gold medalist John Schuster will be in action this weekend at the U.S. National Curling Championships in Kalamazoo, Michigan, which is very exciting. We understand some of our listeners will be there, so we want to hear all about it. The International Biathlon Union World Cup Tour is heading over to North America this week, so Claire Egan will be competing 
in Canmore, which is outside of Calgary, this weekend. And then next weekend, they'll be in Soldier Hollow in Utah, which was the nice. site of the 2002 Olympic biathlon competition. And get your tickets. Right? Right. They're going quickly, I understand. And really? it's a great venue. Good. It's a beautiful venue. Oh, that's right. Uh, this is, the one, you this saw is where biathlon. I saw biathlon there. Yeah, it's that's just right. so gorgeous. So Bring and, a cowbell. Right? Well, if you go, like, seriously, the fans are crazy. Biathlon fans are just nuts. And you will see cowbells bigger than you've ever seen in your life. I do not know how they get those things through airports, to be quite honest. They buy them their own seat. <laughs> I want to know if somebody's got a cowbell as big as I am, because I am not that tall. I'm sure there is a cowbell. Well, at there least is. with the, 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 the handle, probably with the handle. Yeah. Totally. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean. I, and I and I want to stand next to that cowbell. So if you know a cowbell <laughs> that's five feet tall, <laughs> I want to meet it. All right, on the list, our favorite figure skating analyst Jackie Wong is in Anaheim covering the Four Continents Championships, and so he's already posting updates from practices at RockerSkating.com. So follow him there. Follow him on Twitter because he's got his notes up in a jiffy. If you want to watch that action. And then uh, lastly, the International Skating Union World Dis Single Distance Champs is in Insel, Germany this weekend. And the ladies 500 meter is on Friday, February 8th. So uh, we should look for Aaron Jackson to be on that start list. Excellent. If this episode made you inspired to work out, why not do it in an Olympic Fever t-shirt? We've got all sorts of items and designs in our T Public store. Click on the link at olimfever.com to buy something comfortable and support the show. And they're really soft. They are comfortable. They're very comfortable. We're mine all the time. It's really soft. <laughs> well, I do. Okay. So I had the shirt on. Mm -hmm. This is this is totally true. I had the shirt on because I was showing it to my family. <laughs> Touch it. It's so soft. <laughs> so if you if if I see you and you say, "Oh, Olympic fever," I will make you touch the shirt and be like, "Look, it's so soft." So. I do like that. I mean, that's nice. I am like Meghan Markle. Mine has a bateau neckline and three-quarter sleeve. I got one oh. of like the... Oh, yeah. Oh. I got one sort of the snazzier cuts. Oh. Yeah, it's so, amazing yeah. what you can customize there. And there's not just shirts. There's there's hoodies. There's also buttons and, and stickers and notebooks. So check what out kind of our fun store. Stuff? Yep. Click on our website, olimfever.com. Click on the link. So on that note, we will wrap it up for this week. We'll catch you here back next week with our latest book club episode. Yep, book club Claire is back to chat with us about Rome 1960, the Olympics that changed the world by David Moranis. And then the week after that, we'll have Laura Wilkinson back to talk about her Olympic experiences. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. Stay in touch. Email us at olymfever at gmail.com. That's O-L-Y-M fever at gmail. You can also leave us a voicemail at 530-763-3837. That's 530-70-FEVER. We're on Twitter at OlimFever, and you can join in the conversation at our Facebook group, Olympic Fever Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. See, we ask the important questions, Laura. <laughs> These are the things that the people want to know.